1: Hugh sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment
2: industry experience in the music and sports business.
3: Oh, yeah. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. Today we welcome Doug Gillard. Doug is an American guitarist and songwriter who originally hails from northern Ohio, now based in New York City. He's been a member of major indie pop and punk bands over the years, most notably guided by voices from 97 to 2004 and 2016 to present, helping lead the powerhouse indie rock gods fronted by the incomparable Bob Pollard to new heights, plus also a member of not a serve. And in the past, other great bands, including Bambi Kino, which maybe you're still in that one. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Death of Samantha. I thought so and Cobra Verde, and also recorded with the likes of Nico Case, The Hold Steady, and others. Gillard is also a super huge Beatles fan, which really, really matters on this podcast. He also has a great catalog of solo music, all of which can be found at his Bandcamp site, DougGillard.Bandcamp.com. Without further ado, we're going to jump right into this, and I forgot to welcome the, a co-host this time. Sorry, guys. Please Come on, wel- Andy. Please welcome <laughs> Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How you doing, man? Good. And Hugh Syme, how's it going, Hugh?
2: It's going well, thanks, Andy. Good, good. All right, let's go. Let's, uh, let's talk to Doug. Let's go here. Hey, Doug. It's great to get to talk to you today, man. I, I dove into some of your stuff, and I, I want to start with talking about your uh, 2014 record, uh, Parade On. The first thing that I noticed as I went through the whole record was uh, very interesting melodies against the chord progressions in the voicings that you're using on your guitar. And also specifically the layering of your guitars, the, w- the way you do that, you know, to create, you know, when the chorus comes in, all of a sudden you got this big, and then you, it's just very well mm. organized. Um, and what I'd like to do is I'm just going to go through and, and just talk about some of these songs and, and encourage listeners, if you haven't heard this record, go get it. It's really great. Parade On, Doug Gillard. So before we were actually uh, recording, we were talking about uh, Ready for Death, which is a very cool song. Um, It's got in when I mentioned these other artists, I'm not saying that uh, I'm not comparing or I'm just saying that to me, there sounds like there could have been some influence there. I think we're all influenced by guys that come before us. And what intrigued me about your record was I heard stuff, the same stuff that I love that kind of goes in my music, too. But I'm hearing some George Harrison in there, maybe Todd Rundgren, big star influence possibly. But just, it, it speaks to me great. The whole record speaks to me. Um, Your eyes, the that picking that you're doing is flawless, by the way. That's pretty fantastic. It's not easy to do. Guitar players, check that out. Thanks.
1: That song, um, I think I, I came up with the basic chords first, but then over, over those root notes... For the one part, I uh, I got it in my head to do something like um, Our Love Was, that song, The Who. Oh, sure. And that's where the picky picky arpeggio part comes from. I okay. Guess.
4: What I'd like to know is where, where the very subtle English accent comes from when you're singing. Um... I don't know is there one in there? I that it's probably true. I don't mean it as an affectation. I mean it really right. Oh, it is affected, I'm sure. <laughs> but it sells the song and that's probably what made me feel that kind of British invasion oh. kind of that constrained economy that you have with writing great pop structure, you know. And I I I really enjoyed that. I listened to the whole uh, Parade on today as well as Dean and
1: I guess I just don't like over-enunciation in 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 rock. I sure. you know, yeah.
4: <laughs> Well, when, when ours
1: are too hard um, it's just for me personally it's just not a
2: yeah I was hearing it, it's kind of birdsy birdsy sounding vocals on that song it reminded me of a little bit of you know maybe uh, don't fear the reaper-ish where, where they were doing the birds kind of voice is kind of what that reminded me of oh that could be I guess yeah. I mean again it's all you know it's all relative we all kind of take that stuff in and throw it in a big vat and yeah, out. you don't even
1: realize it. it you're, you're culling from something deep in your
4: reservoir. There, it's it's unwitting muscle memory is what sometimes happens. I mean, yeah. I've even had people say, "Yeah, you just wrote a Beatles song," and not only was it reminiscent of a Beatles song, I actually stumbled into chords that I I didn't plan to to. Uh, oh to, yeah. To, to incorporate, um, it was it Upper Hand that had the kind of the real kind of frenetic. It was a 12 string or whatever it felt. It felt like eight miles high a little bit at the end of upper hand. It had a great, a great feel um, to it.
2: Oh yeah. There's a little ascending sort of thing that's, there. Yeah. I thought it sounded like something off forever changes by love. Oh, well that's nice. Yeah. Right. I mean, I really did. That's the first thing that I thought of. The one that really reminded me of the who was come out and show me. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, because you got the bass note that's just pivoting, and then you're doing those chords on top, like, you know, Rough Boys or, I don't know, uh, something like yeah. Fini or something. I've got a question, Doug. So, you know, we talk a
3: lot about, you know, Guided by Voices and the, the bands you played in or play in. But from a solo perspective, when you're working on your solo work, you know, how do you approach that versus, you know, being a part of the band? Because, you know, so many people, obviously, they're in a band and they don't do the solo stuff so much,
1: but you do. It seems like you're always working. So can you
3: kind of tell us a little bit about your
1: approach? Well, solo things, I just sort of let things accumulate until it's time to do a record. And uh, it's been quite a while since the last, since Parade On, really, to me, it's still the most recent album, but it's kind of been too long. (laughs) right um so uh i kind of start at home mostly with the solo stuff but i'll do a lot of sketches
2: on garage band and a lot of times those tracks will make it into the album you get a vibe sometimes on a demo that you you can chase and chase when you try to redo it and never oh, get man. it again you yeah, tell me about all it. Know that yeah demoitis. Demoitis. yeah you get it all the time
4: demos today are so much more. Um, Ready for prime time than they ever used to be. You know, we're a long way from from a, a cassette player or a reel to reel in the basement. You know, that is so true. In question. And I love hearing old demos that were on tape. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um. You know, I listen to a lot of Beatles podcasts, as you guys might too, and have collected over the years. Well, oh, there's YouTube. Um, you've heard all the demos, a lot of the demos that they used to do at home on, a, you know. Revox and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, the the white album stuff especially. Townsend scoop, all that stuff. Yep. Um, love hearing old tape demos, or and then
2: in the eighties and nineties it was cassettes, and those are even more lo-fi, and those are always great. Yeah, the Townsend demos. It's kind of amazing to to listen to those when you know he pretty much could have just played all those records by himself. I'm glad he didn't, but those yeah. those songs were pretty complete when he take them into the Who for sure. Yeah, pretty astonishing actually. Great versions.
4: So, so you don't have a backlog of uh, songs just aching to make its way onto an album?
1: Not really. I have a lot of musical ideas um, in the old voice memo bank. How do you
3: decide what to keep for yourself and what to maybe give to a band, or you know what I mean? How do how do you kind of divide that
1: up? I guess. Well, I keep I keep mousing for myself. There's um, with with God My Voices. Um, we only write individually as members when when it's when it's it, you know we're asked to um right well we'll do b-sides of 45s every now and then um there was an album a few albums back august by cake where I, every member wrote two songs and for the record but right um actually i'm working on a project with death is my old band from the 80s okay um, so we're, cool. we're starting to record again so writing a couple things for them but otherwise most mostly everything i do is for solo you know okay cool and the rest is is,
2: uh our instrumental parts um for the bands if i can ask you i mean i I wasn't aware until i kind of dove into your your history that you're not just a guitarist but you're a singer a guitarist bassist keyboardist drummer and percussionist man i applaud your your versatility can you tell us how you got interested in music in the first place and got started playing uh progressing up to uh playing in your first band? Well, um I mean currently I'm not much of
1: a drummer. I I can I can get something done for a recording, you know, but um as far as playing a live set with a band, I have a, I have a lazy uh right leg, I think as far as as far as uh, kick drum uh precision goes, but um Well, it's one of those things where if you, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it for sure. I used to have a drum kit in my, in my bedroom in high school, but um, I don't live with the drum kit right now at all. So I started playing as a little kid, um, just banging on oatmeal containers and Hills brothers, coffee cans. And that's, that's a pretty common story I'm finding. I think a lot of kids hauled out the pots and pans as a kid.
4: I thought the thick phone book had a nice kind of, Tea towel on snare
1: sound. <laughs> One time, I did um, for like a sixth grade. Was it sixth grade reading class? They had a talent show in the class, and so I we had a couple of recorders at the, at the house. Um, this little reel-to-reel, and a, I don't know if it's a cassette or a track that I had. And I learned how to bounce um, overdub. So I did a back backing for the then popular calling Doctor Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah I, guess, yeah, I didn't sure sing it. to it. I just played the backing track in class, and I just played leads over it, or played the melody on guitar. I didn't win, either. Someone else won. Anyway, I'm digressing from the, the early childhood. No, I would just uh, get out the records and play the records or watch TV and just bang on stuff. There was a toy guitar around that eventually I really gravitated towards more. But drums came first. Yeah. Um, my dad played guitar, and he he, he Kept the guitar in a closet and would bring it out once or twice a year. Just played it for hobby his whole life. He had a 55. They, he said it was a Gibson at the time, but I think it was a K old craftsman. Thin twin. It was the kind that you see Jerry Reed and Huber Sumlin have. They have the, so the oh. blonde, the tiger stripe pickguard. Mm-hmm. I, uh, he sold it. He traded it in for my first guitar that they got me, which was an SG back in or. And he didn't know that he was trading in something really cool, and I was wasn't aware enough to stop him. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, they said we got to get something thinner for for Dougie. Uh, this one's too big, and um, so the guys at that that music store probably were bringing their hands. Like, ah.
3: so was, the, that, was that was that in uh, what was Akron, Ohio? Or is that where you grew Delaria. up? Or- Okay. Okay.
1: Got it. Elyria, which is a, it's a suburb of Cleveland. It's not really a suburb of Cleveland, but it's on the outskirts. It's about 30 miles West. Okay. Okay. Got it. I so grew up in been, the farmland, sort of the Firelands area here on Berlin Heights, Milan. Okay. Okay. I got of more towards the Sandusky farmlands uh, area. Got it. Okay.
3: So you mentioned Kiss calling Dr. Love. What, what, uh, what records and what, what, what bands were inspiring you as you were growing up? Who were you listening to and, and, uh, in Northeastern Ohio in those years? Um,
1: it was basically the radio for the longest time and my sister's records. Uh, and the radio at that time was the Big Eight, um, CKLW from Detroit, Windsor. <laughs> That's what we could get on the uh-huh. Um, And it came in really clear where we were at. And I don't know, my I wore out my sister's records of uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Monkeys and... Um, See, Meet the Beatles and Hard Day's Night albums, basically.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Can't go wrong there. No.
1: Uh, Great. There were some other ones. I mean, Glenn Campbell, Wichita Lineman albums in the family. Fantastic. Beautiful. They didn't have many records, but they had some. And uh, I started asking my folks to buy records. I saw some Chuck Berry compilation in the store, and they got that for me when I was eight or something.
4: I remember I was remember listening to uh, Glenn Campbell Wichita Lyman <clears throat> back to back with Court of the Crimson King. <laughs> just, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. it was it was just in the air Probably about I, the
2: same probably about the same year wasn't it? 69. Yeah. Yeah. I keep but forgetting I uh how how
1: far back that King Crimson album goes. I always think oh there's 71 72. That was like 69. Yeah,
2: yeah. pre ELP's first record was 70 so it was before that. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's great. Have you no have classic. you seen kept up with
1: um the Robert Fripp and Toya videos that they've been doing? No. Um, they have a great set of um videos. He'll sit there and play something and she'll dance or sing something. And it'll be short little Wow, no, I gotta they that do. out. They're comedic. Yeah. Is that oh, cool. where, where is it at? Is it on his website or Facebook page or I just stumbled onto him on YouTube.
4: Oh, okay. Cool. Speaking of music and and dance, I just happened to stumble over a a um, David Grohl and uh, what's her name, Sophia, the the dancer actress, and they, they, I mean, they're really quite engaging. They have a nice recorded piece of them just talking to the world. But there's a new video called um, Shame Shame. It's a Foo Fighters song, and she's pretty good. She she's she does an amazing interpretation of the song. I've got to see that. I
3: haven't
1: seen any of that.
3: Now, Doug, obviously, you know, shifting gears into into guided by voices now. Um, You know, when you talk about indie rock bands, you know, there is no bigger indie rock band than Guided by Voices. Um, And obviously, the live component is such a key part of it. Um, I've been a fan of of GBV for a long time. When I really got into the band was when you were in the band for that first run after Mag Earwig and um, Mm -hmm. Do the Collapse and all those great records that are just, you know, I still listen to to this day um, often. Um, but, t- you know, kind of take us through that process of when you joined the band and how that all came together for you to be a member of the band.
1: Well, uh, I was in Death of Samantha in the 80s. We were a Cleveland band. We were signed to Homestead Records, which had Sonic Youth. Uh, they were a New York based indie label. They had a lot of things um, on the label, but they had us and um, we toured around a little bit um we morphed into the band called cobra verde around 91 92 and cobra verde did some recording up here i mean up here in in cleveland i I should say still in cleveland um and robert pollard was a fan of he was a big death of samantha fan he had those records uh by the time they those guys were ready to come play up in cleveland um we were put on as uh, opening for guided by voices. So we did some shows with them as Cobra Verde. Uh, my other band jam that I had as well, um, opened a GBV show 94, 95 ish. And so we were friends. Um, both bands were friends and, uh, sometime in 96, Bob, uh, dissolved that lineup that he had, um, didn't know what to do and uh, called us and Cobra Verde to be the band.
3: Okay, okay. Was that after they were on the Halloweelusa tour? GBB? Yeah. Okay, because yeah, that's so the this first time. I late ninety six. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I saw them on that lineup, which was like Smashing Pumpkins and Beastie Boys, I think. And they were on the the side stage. And I didn't know who the hell they were. And I didn't I still didn't know who they were for, for several years. And the my first meeting with Bob was he was um this is uh kind of when I got started in, in the business, I guess if you will. When I was in college, I was the music director at this alternative rock station in Franklin College. And, uh, 89.5 WFCI. But anyway, um, I, I had the opportunity to go to the Egyptian room in downtown Indian meet, uh, Dave or meet, uh, Foo Fighters. And I went backstage to get a liner, um, from the drummer, um, for my, for my station. And me and this other guy went up and we were, I'll never forget it because we were leaving for spring break that night. And so we were focused on getting the, getting the Florida, but we wanted to see the Foo Fighters. And we go back there and we're, uh, William Goldsmith was the guy's name. Great si- yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. And so we're doing this liner and Dave Grohl comes around the corner and says, you guys don't want to talk to this guy. He's just the drummer, you know, kind of saying it in a funny way, since he's a drummer. He's like, come on mm-hmm. back, you know, after the show or whatever. And so we did. And we're in this dressing room, um, talk, me and my, my friend Jeff talking to Dave Grohl and Pat Smear was in there and Bob Pollard was in there because the band called The Amps uh, opened yeah. up, yeah. which I think Nate, was nate farley in the amps maybe he uh, was um yes. yeah yeah i think he was in the anyway but i didn't know who bob was at that time he was in the room and we got introduced and when he said guided by voices i remembered the name because i played them on the radio station uh shocker in Gloomtown" was be, we played it on the radio yeah. station at that time and so i'm like oh okay i know who that band is but i didn't know who he was but anyway um all to say you know for anybody listening that hasn't listened to guided by voices if you're a fan of the who cheap trick the beatles if you're looking for a band that's had some of the biggest acts that rock bands in the last 20 years open for them um whether it be the strokes or kings of leon you know foo fighters huge fans i was at a show in cincinnati where they brought bob on stage to sing bob o'reilly in the uh in the uh the end of the Mm -hmm. show the encore because bob had opened i mean You know, if you're a rock fan, you've got to listen to these guys. And these albums that Doug was on were so influential to me as a rock fan during these years. You know, I've got some of them here, Isolation Drills. Um, There's uh, Earthquake Glue, Mag Earwig, uh, Universal Truce and Cycles. Now, this album, Do the Collapse, was, you know, kind of you know, to me, it was probably one of the most commercial things you guys did. But I'd like to talk about that one for a second, because it was uh, produced by Rick Ocasek from The Cars. Take us, if you will, kind of take us back to the studio with how that all came together and working with Rick. Uh,
1: we did it at Electric Lady. We went there for pre-production first. Maybe? I can't remember if we went for pre-production uh, when we were there to do a show in the summer. Maybe that was the case. He, he had us go to SIR studios and he, he observed a, us playing those songs and kind of made some changes, made a couple of arrangement changes and made a drum beat change and this and that. Uh, we played a show at Tramps, a club that no longer exists, um, where he watched the show just to kind of get a taste of us live. Uh, so then in that, that fall of 98, we came to New York and did the uh, did the tracks. Um, electric lady. So he he was he was kind of a he was hands on and hands off. I I would say he let his engineer get a lot of the sounds. Okay, uh, who was his engineer? He got back and chain smoked, huh? Who was the engineer? Uh, Brian Sperber. Okay, all right. Um, in the past, his engineer was Chris Shaw, who did things like the Weezer record with him right. in and the Not a Surf thing before we came along. Uh, To work with Rick. But um, by that time, he had Brian Sperber. So it was a little different sound than those records. um, I would later work with Chris with Not A Surf. Right. Um, Now, how did that how did your
3: involvement in that band come about? Was that a result of Chris? Or was it just, you know, another story? Or how'd that come about?
1: uh, Working on Not A Surf? Mm hmm. Uh, I had moved to New York and uh, Matthew came and saw one of my solo. I had a residency at pianos here, uh, which was a club on the Lower East Side. Right. Um, He came to one of the shows and said, Hey, you want to come jam along with us sometime? They were doing, they were doing a covers album. So he just wanted me to come and play on a couple songs. It kind of went on from there, but, uh, but the Rick thing, uh, we were looking at producers before he was chosen and, um, so Bob and he started exchanging cassettes and he sent Bob a lot of his acoustic demos that, for the first cars album and things like that. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Wow. And one thing that's interesting is to hear is, you know, I grew up loving the cars. I was 13, whatever that was that they hit Ohio. It was, yeah, sure. whoa. I mean, I didn't see them live, but I, the radio was just all over it. WMMS. Um, and it, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread to me. Um, Oh
3: yeah. Still amazing. Those albums are killer. Yeah, yeah those absolutely. are absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so on some of these demos, um, it sounds like Dylan. Turns out that's that's a, a driving force in a lot of his writing. Really? really? Wouldn't like, guess that. Just just what I needed. There's a uh, demo for that on that. Uh, wow! On totally, just and,
2: what I needed.
1: <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's doing the palm muted, you know, on the guitar. And singing, I don't mind you coming here. This wasn't it wasn't a melody yet. Later on, Bob and I, we did we did some of the sessions we did at his house to save money. He had a studio in his house. With some finishing touches, some vocals and overdubs and stuff. The Brownstone in Gramercy Park. He had a studio in his basement. So one time during a break, we were sitting there and he gets his 12 string out and sits by us, starts finger picking since you're gone start singing it. I was like, that's Dylan too. You know, hmm. um, that's the cool. way he was finger picking the 12 string acoustic. Like, Oh, I get it. Now it started off as a folk song. It makes sense. Wow. You know, uh, but that was, that was, that was fun. We did, uh, a lot of work at electric lady. And like, as I said, some at son at his house and, um, he he had a lot to do with the sound of the record, and and he put he played some synths on it, um, not at our request, huh. oh. but that's okay. you know we kind of wanted to see how he's going to shape shape the sound, and he did so. Right. Sure. Well, it's a great
3: record. I mean, I think it's in some ways. Um, You know, as a fan maybe unfairly because of his involvement it seems to be the one that a lot of people maybe talk about in some regard but it's to me it's not the best guided by voices record either it's tough to pick just one because hey there's so many but you know when i look down at the ones that you know how it is after the years pass the ones that uh, kind of pop back up mag earwig to me is still one that you know it's it's always there you know i mean that one's yeah. I don't know, you know to me uh you know isolation drills is great for the summer you just roll down the windows crank up crank it mm-hmm. up the whole way you're driving you know mm-hmm. what i mean down the road but yeah bang earwig to me is i don't know personally speaking probably my favorite record by them and and probably my favorite record by them that you're on um and it has uh which i would do want to talk about is uh, i am a tree on it can you tell us just a little bit or at least me t- tell me the story about that song and how that song came together uh,
1: I wrote it when I was uh, starting this band called Gem in Cleveland. Um, I guess I I didn't really write for the bandage for for myself or whatever project right. I, would, I would do, but um, had a capo on the seventh fret, and just, I think I was playing trying to play "Go Your Own Way." Okay, for no reason, I'm just kind of like, oh, this is how they play. I'm, okay, uh, Scarborough Fair is also on seventh fret. Could have been that. I don't know um and then you just keep noodling and then eventually like wow here's a riff okay and just kind of started making up the song from there and i did a demo of it with a drum machine and a four track uh and it was a gem song so we recorded it as a full band in like 94 or something right and never put it out we never put it out and those times when cobra verde and gem were opening for guided by voices when they'd come to cleveland I'd given Bob a tape of some of that stuff, including that unreleased song. And so when, when we joined the band as Cobra Verde to be got by voices, Bob said, eh, we're doing Maggie. Here we go. Hey, remember the song I'm a tree that you guys did since you guys never put it out. I think I'd want to do that song on the record. I said, that'd be great Yeah, to hear you sing. It, it would be amazing. So I'm so glad you did. It's such a great song. song. About.
3: Yeah. It's just, to me, it really encapsulates the band in a lot of different ways. It's so cool. Um, but anyway, um, so we're going to shift gears into, uh, kind of the visual aspect and Hugh's going to jump in and, and, uh, and take the reins for a bit.
4: All right. I'm going to try and I'm glad to hear that you, you have followed artwork at the top of the conversation. You kindly made a comment about following the art. Um, obviously one of the questions I always ask musicians, um, is, just how important they feel shelf appeal and album graphics are, you know, some bands are just all about the playing and they just let the label take care of the artwork. And yeah. so sometimes it works to their advantage because, because it's really just about putting the band on the cover, you know, fuck art, let's dance, you know, mm-hmm. and then I look at your covers. You're all over the map. I mean, yours, and also um, guided by voices, you've got mirrored attack, which feels like, feels like a Fillmore more Poster, it's got a very kind of you know black light. Oh, yeah, yeah, black light. yeah. and then um, vampire the yellow on a very kind of restrained you go all over the place, which which appeals to me because my oldest and dearest client is the band Rush from Toronto, and yes, and they they allowed it. I mean, you know, I i love Neil Peart's um early kind of credo, you know, deviate from the norm, that was one of his lyrics. and. Mm-hmm. They did they did that musically, and they certainly allowed me that latitude to indulge. So I've noticed your band. I mean, you've got the Vampire's cover is yellow. You've got this Russian propaganda tour poster, which looks like, you know, like call call to arms for for the Russian military. Um, Mag Earwig is a fantastic foreshortening with the, with the cards in the foreground. Do the collapse. I mean, that's how I would have done that cover with the crushed cube. It's pretty cool. I would say um,
1: do the collapse and isolation drills were label label driven uh covered that was their in house guy um, almost every other guided by voices or Robert pollard related project uh, are Bob's ideas, okay, most of them are his collages his execution too yeah um most most of the time is execution unless it's like a photograph with some graphics over it right um which is which might be his idea but it's not a collage Um uh, most of them are the collages though and he sells those as independent art artworks as well i see he's done he's done tons of great collages my favorite might be the mag earwig
4: yeah it's pretty cool uh, how about your own i mean when, when we look at when i look at the last album it's quite a uh, uh, again quite restrained and modern your your parade on the two words parade on would not have you know for a million years have have uh, caused me to respond the way you did i don't know if you did that cover but
1: it was one of those things where i was making up the song parade on uh i didn't know it would be the title track but i thought of i couldn't get those syllables and vowel sounds out of my head uh, and i didn't want to say don't rain on don't rain on what that doesn't make any sense so i came up with that and um
4: no, it's a great title. I think titles to me titles are the the genesis of any good album cover. a lot of times placeholders
1: end up being the thing that it's called but yeah uh, and so since it became the title, I'm like, oh, what can I do? I'll, I bought these objects. they're actually bookends, yeah, um I bought a light box and uh, borrowed my wife's camera and took the photo myself. oh great <laughs> um and the label that put it out, Rick at nine mile um He said he could help with with the the graphic, the lettering. And so I kind of, you know, we bandied about some fonts. And um, I said, that that one's cool. I don't know if people really love that cover a lot. I'm proud of it just because it's just necessity. And, you know, I'm I'm not much of an artist, but I, you know, you got to get something done. So you got to have a cover.
4: I'm a big fan of brave minimalism. I I like seeing... You know, I think I think Coldplay did a couple of really quirky covers where, where you know you don't really quite know what it is, but it it works. And then there's also the old adage: if an album's good, the cover automatically becomes good. You know, um, you mm. know, it, uh, there, there's arguably some covers in history, you know, um, that that have have proven that to be true. I mean, white album, man. So well, of course, but but yep. no, be, be careful. That is. To me, that's brilliance. It <laughs> that, is. No, I know. This, it is incredible. I think Revolver is, you know, um Klaus Burman's sketch on Revolver. It's charming. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Would I have ever kind of as an isolated piece of art called that great art? Maybe not. But is that a fucking great album and therefore a great cover? That's there you the go. the tail wagged that dog, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always thought uh, Freeman's picture of them when they were trying to ape Astrid Kircher's black and white, dark thing uh, for with the Beatles, meet the Beatles. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure.
4: It's a great cover. Yeah. Amazing. I had dinner with Astrid. I'm I'm proud to say. Oh, wow. Uh, My good friend, Dimo Safari grew up in Hamburg and we just finished doing an album project for Charlotte church. The then the then 12 year old opera singer in London. And, we took a side trip to his hometown and we, we met up with Astrid. It was, it was a wonderful evening. Um, Amazing. I have four of her pieces just because of that meeting. Oh, great.
1: That's yeah. awesome. We ended up having dinner with, uh, uh, well, G- Gibson Kemp is a guy that has a pub in Hamburg. He was a drummer that um, was married to Astrid for a bit in the mid-60s. Ah. He was in the big three. He was in these these Liverpool bands that ended up going there after the Beatles. Um, and touring, he toured behind Chuck Berry and Little Richard. And this is in, we're talking 64-ish, 65-ish and stuff. He ended up staying in Hamburg and starting a, a pub, Gibson Kemp's British pub. We went there one night when we first got there Great. in 2011 awesome. to do another show. Ended up talking to him. And he sat down and talked to us and told us stories about Little Richard and crazy things. Chuck Berry had just gotten out of jail and he, wasn't, he was not in a bad mood the all time. <laughs> with him um, that's awesome Astrid was gonna maybe come by but she didn't I mean I don't blame her why would you want to come and see meet a bunch of American guys playing the Beatles stuff she's in, inundated with that stuff at the time I'm sure but yeah uh, we met Horst Fasher the guy that uh, was the bouncer for the we play the Indra where they first played right and Horst Fasher was the bouncer in those days for them when they first got back uh, got to Hamburg and he handed them the drugs and the prellies and all stuff.
2: Crazy <laughs> characters. You meet in Hamburg that had associations with those guys. I got to walk around on in the star club when I was in Hamburg. Oh yeah. And, and supposedly that, that tiny little stage is, you know, I was asking, yeah, that's, that's where they played. So I got, <laughs> I got up there and walked around. Really Burned down. I
1: think I, you, you probably saw the rebuilt one.
2: Yeah, mm, maybe it looked, Man, it looked like it'd been there forever. I mean, it was this was 25 years ago, it was 96. Oh, okay. So I, I'm not sure, but yeah, I was told that was the same stage, and that was enough for me to just walk around on it for
1: a few minutes. Oh, yeah, he has a lot of live uh, videos on YouTube. Um, different people have taken you can probably check them out. Yeah, out. we did one with Mark Lewis and the writer. Joined us at a Beatles fest and came up and uh, sang up, sang a couple songs.
2: <laughs> nice. Did he do the uh, like the recording sessions book?
1: Yeah, and he's doing the big yeah. three part uh, tune in, the, the huge nine hundred page. Oh wow! Book. Yeah. And mm-hmm, then cool. he's doing volume two uh,
2: now, and no one knows when that's going to be done. But that's kind of like the birds bibles that I've got. Yeah. Requiem for the masses. That's they're both a thousand pages. <laughs> you got to be really a, a bird's nerd, a bird nerd, to uh, have those, and I proudly do. Hugh's book, uh, The Art of Rush. How many pages is that
3: book,
4: Hugh? That's is an amazing book. Well, it's two seventy something, which kind of crept up on me really fast, and we're actually doing a second edition, um, uh, which is going to feature. Some more of the, it's, you know, I consider Rush, you know, even though they retired and everybody said, well, now what? Um, we're doing 40th anniversary box sets, which is really not a cash grab. It's, it's definitely taking footage from the Hammersmith Odeon and, it's just, you know, cleaning up old video and re, remixing, bringing Terry Brown back in to, to properly remix the live performances. And mm. so it, it's really valuable stuff for, for a true Rush fan. But it also allows me to go back in and revisit lyrics that I probably didn't pay very close attention to, to be quite honest, because in the early days, I wasn't really a huge Rush fan, even though I was on the same label as 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 the band. Um, but it allowed me to go back in and harvest the imagery and have fun with with new artwork, because we can now do these 12 inch square booklets to go inside with with the uh with the vinyl um but we're, we're, we're taking some of the imagery from those 40th anniversary box sets and we're going to do an addendum to the original to the original uh, art of rush and re-release that we're also going to do a, a, a memorial page for neil in the new book so yeah that's, oh,
1: that's cool. awesome how did it come about that the, the the man from hemispheres became sort of the logo and then this the stage image did, complete accident that did that predate the cover or did the cover came first
4: (coughs) the cover came first i mean the the, they mean the 2112 cover yeah yeah well that came first but then once neil and i started talking about you know the the arc of the the epic side one story and he said well we're we're dealing with kind of the battle of of self-expression and freedom of expression and the oppressive Red Star of the Federation, which was contrary to any any of those freedoms. You no, know, I heard Red Star of the Federation, and and someone some one individual um, defying that. So it really became quite a literal interpretation. The fact that he was naked was more a statement of um, of I guess purity, you know, pure mm-hmm. art without the trappings of clothing and all of that. Um, yeah, not quite realizing. Whether or not that would play well to the to the very male centric rock uh, audience that Rush had at the time and continued to have, um, but that it became their their brand was a complete accident. I mean, I I couldn't have known that it was going to be adopted as as repetitively and as thoroughly as it was. Um, it, it was an accident. Sometimes
1: that start that all starts with uh, in a rehearsal. What are we going to put on the drum head and tour? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So sure. uh, that one thing from the album cover. Okay.
4: And that—that's what I'm saying though. That could have worked for one release and one tour, but it wouldn't go away. It's one of those things that just wouldn't go away. So <laughs> um, that's that's an okay. That's an okay happenstance. Yeah. That's very cool.
1: And also for for the days when uh, when uh, that con that concept you guys were talking about on on side one was just a fantasy. Yeah. That's a good
3: segue and the the shift in gears a little bit again. So can you tell us, Doug, what was your first attended concert as a fan?
1: First actual concert, big big concert was Peter Gabriel. Oh wow. 83. Cool. It was a security tour with Shock the Monkey. Awesome. Right. Um, it was more that I went more on an invitation than I want to go to this because a few friends from high school were going and someone had a ride and like, hey, do you want to go in on a ticket for this? Yeah, sure. And I was a I was a fan, but I didn't have a burning desire. I mean, it wasn't, you know, something I had my sights set on. But it was great. It was, you know, Tony they came through the crowd, Tony Levin playing they all they were all playing uh, drums like my band drums as they made their way to the stage. And from what I remember of that, it was it was very cool and very very great concert. But um then I started going to things like U2. Play Cleveland Music Hall on the War Tour. Wow! All right, uh, things like that. You know, I, I was already playing in clubs um, in my in the bands I was in. Punk band. So say how
3: how old were you when you started playing in the clubs?
1: I'm about sixteen. Okay, uh, that's the, young. The other guys, the other guys in the band, were twenty five and stuff, so they were of age. Wow! Sure. And somehow I passed for older, so. It's funny. I, I don't know the
3: theme on on this podcast. Sometimes is I think we should work in as a new question is how young were you when you started playing in the clubs? Because we were talking to Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie recently, mm-hmm. and I think he was what thirteen or something like that when he started. He was that. fourteen when uh,
2: 14. when Marriott and Kenny Jones first saw him and gave That's him a thumbs right. up from the side of the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, uh, but sixteen's like, pretty young, man. That's pretty yeah, young. no question. It, it's crazy to think that
3: sixteen's not the youngest that we've talked to, but yeah. I guess for a Midwesterner, I guess that's
1: pretty. Oh yeah, fun. Um, definitely.
3: Now, Doug, you know what? When you look at the, you know, Guided by Voices, is it, it's always every time I've seen uh, that band in concert, it's kind of like this—the relentless, you know, live experience where it's just a pounding. You know, it's almost like an athletic event, you know, where you go into a GBV show and you don't go in with a passive type of, <laughs> you know, uh, mentality. I think it's almost like you're getting ready to head to the stadium to watch an NFL game or a college football game because it's just it's like a pounding. And it's I love that about it. And it's like a hundred songs. No kidding. Like literally, it seems like it's at least, you know, 70 to 100 songs or well, two minutes.
1: We did 100 songs um, New Year's. Yeah, uh, in LA last year. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah, and it's hundred for hundred dollars is what it was. Right. It's amazing. But I mean, I, most, you know, most of our most of our sets are about 50, 60 songs. Right. Like the regular right. set would be fifty or sixty songs. Oh
3: my. So God. how do you how do you prepare yourself for for that? I mean, that's you know, it, it's it's a big it's a big ask to go out and and play for a couple hours. It's another one to just be relentless about it, and that's what's that's what makes GBV shows so great, but you know, how do you, as a band member keep that up you know every time you're going out?
1: yeah, I thought you were gonna say musically how do you remember the songs, how do you keep up with the song, but you're talking about physical stamina yeah, yeah, um both. Both. Well, yeah. both yeah sure I don't know we just we just make sure we do a good sound check um which are, which the sound check doesn't last that long for us, but uh i, I which I don't know um. Is it kind of like an, ad- an adrenaline thing? You know, it's kind of like
3: once you're up there, then it kind of takes It's an takes adrenaline over?
1: thing. We make sure we write our own, we, we write our own set list backstage in, in Marker. Mm-hmm. Uh, because well, that'd be they enough paint. to give you a
2: cramp right there. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. A
1: hundred songs, They change it from show to show because Bob puts a different sequence. I mean, it's the same batch we're drawing from. You just put the different sequence, and we don't really know until the day of the show, which is fine because why... You know, a lot of bands tour at the very same typed out set list every show. Um, and why play the same sequence of songs. You, right. When people know you're set, you don't want, and some of you have travelers that go from show to show, you don't want to give them the same thing every, every time.
3: So in, in your history of doing all these shows and you, you've done a ton of them all over the world, Doug, what are the shows that somebody asks you, hey, what are the, the shows that stick out in your career that really are the big ones in your mind? Like, I can't believe this happened or venues or whatever. Can you share a couple of couple of those
1: uh, those memories with us? There's a few things. I mean, there's been so many that I'm sure I'm leaving out a whole slew. But uh, um, with GBV, we played Primavera Festival Last year, uh, that was really that was cool. We played Central Park Summer Stage one time back in the late '90s. Uh, we we're on TV shows. Um, one special one was with Not a Surf. We played uh, Le Bataclan in Paris. We were one of the first bands to play after the terror attacks, a- after they reopened. Yeah, and that was a, that was a pretty moving experience for everyone oh, there. That. Did you watch that Netflix
3: um, documentary that they did on that by chance? It was like, that was, that was really, I, I found myself watching that thinking, Oh, I've watched this in you know, a night or two. And it's really hard to watch. Like you almost had to watch an episode and then kind of process it for several days. At least I think being in this business, knowing so many people and friends in this business and and what it's so relatable and it's hard to watch was it hard to go into that venue that night and that, you know, and kind of go through that? How did that, how did that, I mean, I guess, how did that feel?
1: It wasn't hard to, uh, we got there. I mean, we we're on a tour bus and so you get there at noon or something and it was warm from the moment you walked in, they had a, they had a food spread and everyone's just kind of getting ready for the show and doing their thing. And everyone's in a jovial mood as far as their staff. And everyone's very friendly and very smiley and, and, uh, Um, it was only emotional really, uh, as Matthew talked between songs one time about, about the occasion and, uh, and then we played a a slow song and it just felt, everyone felt, uh, emotional at that time. Sure.
4: Then there's the whole consideration too, that this can't take you down. Don't let it get you down. I mean, of course. Mm -hmm. You right. know, when I heard about Sting, when he did his, uh, he did an incredible show from his, his, uh, his home in Italy. And it was, it was debated whether he was going to continue with the show right after nine eleven And naturally his response was, hell yeah, we are. We're going to, you know, music doesn't stop. You know, this is not going to get us, you know. All right. I imagine. Oh, that, yeah. I'm sure there was a celebratory aspect to you. Oh, yeah. In that room, too.
1: Yeah, it was all about music being, you know, uplifting people and everything.
4: Yeah. Well,
3: Doug, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It was an honor
1: to talk to all you guys. Likewise. Great talking to you, Doug. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Take care, Doug. Thanks for the questions. Very cool. Keep rocking, man. See you later. Thanks, guys. Great talking. Bye-bye.
3: All right. We're going to end this episode with a Doug solo tune. It's called Stealth Control. Thanks again, Doug Gillard, for joining us on the Music Buzz Podcast. Until next time, have a good one.
5: Yeah.